Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan, Associate Professor of Medicine here at GW and Medical Director of the GW Center for Integrative Medicine. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the office's administrative director. Today, we talk about psilocybin and Alzheimer's with Albert Garcia Romeo, PhD, a member of the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences faculty at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Albert Garcia Romeo is the faculty at the Center for Psychedelics and Consciousness Research at Hopkins and also a guest researcher at the National Institute on Drug Abuse Intramural Neuroimaging Research Branch. His research examines the effects of psychedelics in humans with a focus on psilocybin as an aid in the treatment of addiction. And also, of course, we can talk about this in detail of use of uh, psilocybin for Alzheimer's. Which just sounds like it's going to be fascinating. Dr. Garcia's current research interests include clinical applications of psychedelics, mindfulness, altered states of consciousness and their underlying neurobiological mechanisms, and the role of spirituality in mental health and addiction. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Albert. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you. Um, You and I caught um, some time a couple of weeks ago and had a great chat and uh, came up with this idea to bring you onto a podcast. You have so much to share with us today, but I think... um, we covered this topic a little bit already here, uh, but I, I, let's start from the beginning. Um, so let's talk about what is psychedelics and what is specifically psilocybin. And I, I think um, whatever you feel like telling our listeners, let's just do that instead of like me being specific. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm going to mainly focus on a specific class of drugs that we talk uh, that we call classic psychedelics. Um, and there's lots of different drugs that people sometimes call psychedelic, but pharmacologically, these classic psychedelics are specific uh, because of their mechanism of action, which is a serotonin to a receptor agonist. Um, and there's a, a certain group of these, um, most of which are naturally occurring. So they're found in nature, in plants and fungi. Um, and some of them have been synthesized in laboratories. And so, of course, the most famous of these is LSD or lysergic acid diethylamide. Um, but also psilocybin is among those classic psychedelics. Uh, and psilocybin is an alkaloid that's uh, produced by uh, about 200 different species of mushrooms, mostly in the psilocybe genus, and they grow all over the world. And people have taken them for thousands of years uh, in indigenous cultures. Uh, but more recently, there's been a, a big resurgence of research looking at psilocybin specifically as a potential mental health care treatment. And so you you're started um, particularly getting interested in uh, using the psychedelics and specifically psilocybin and Alzheimer's. How did that came up? Like, how did you think of it? And, and what, what's the story here? Well, the story really was um, I was talking to a colleague, Dr. Paul Rosenberg here at uh, Hopkins, who is doing research looking at uh, dronabinol, uh, which is THC from uh, the cannabis plant in patients with uh, Alzheimer's and related dementias. And I approached him really to talk about that because I was interested in his work there. Um, but he said, hey, you know, you're a psilocybin researcher and an expert in that area. Has anybody thought about doing this with uh, these patients, you know, specifically folks who are showing up with a early stage diagnosis, really when they're getting the news, um, which can be very, you know, psychologically devastating. 
Um, and, you know, do you think this would be a helpful or a possible direction to look at further research? And so we talked a bit about that. Um, you know, this was in part uh, kind of sp uh, spawned by similar work in cancer patients. And so um, our center, but also colleagues at UCLA and NYU, have published some nice papers looking at uh, high-dose psilocybin with psychological support in cancer patients to really help them with their end-of-life distress, um, you know, help reduce anxiety, help reduce depressed mood, and improve quality of life for the time that they have. Uh, and that was very successful. I mean, we saw just one or two high doses of psilocybin uh, were, were able to reduce anxiety and depression, improve quality of life uh, for up to six to nine months after uh, the drug dosing. And so for these effects to kind of be per persistent like that is very unusual, um, but it's also consistent with other studies looking at psilocybin and treatment of major depression uh, as well as treatment-resistant major depression. And so nobody had really looked at this in uh, this population, people with Alzheimer's or mild cognitive impairment. Uh, so we started uh, work on this small pilot study that we were able to launch uh, just around the end of 2019. Uh, unfortunately, you know, with the pandemic, that really kind of uh, made it very difficult for us to do the work because uh, all of the drug administration and that kind of thing, you know, takes place in person at our laboratory. Uh, so we definitely experienced some setbacks there. Uh, but since then, we've been able to kind of get the uh, ball rolling again, and we've been enrolling new participants and uh, administering psilocybin. And um, now we're just measuring, you know, mood-related effects to see if it helps with um, any sort of depressive symptoms as well as uh, other quality of life and memory-related uh, tasks that we're measuring. Right. So you guys looking specifically for now just for the quality of life measures, anxiety, stress, stress levels, et cetera, right? Uh, yes, that's our uh, primary aim is to look at depressed mood, quality of life, and if those uh, those particular factors are impacted by the, the psilocybin dosing. Um, but absolutely, as an exploratory aim, you know, we are uh, collecting measures using uh, memory tasks, uh, battery of uh, you know cognitive testing and stuff, really just to to see if there's anything there. And you know, there's an interesting sort of backstory on that, which is. If you look at the preclinical literature on these serotonin 2A receptor mm -hmm. agonist drugs, there's really a robust literature there that shows that they can be useful in animal models for improving things like uh, memory consolidation and learning uh, and accelerating learning processes. Uh, and those are kind of consistent with the idea that they could be cognitive enhancing in uh, patients with something like MCI or Alzheimer's. Um, and, you know, I think even more fascinating, in the last several years, we've seen uh, more work coming out in animal models trying to understand the cellular molecular mechanisms of these drugs and how they exert these persisting effects. And what they found is uh, even a single dose of a classic psychedelic like psilocybin is associated with uh, dendritogenesis, synaptogenesis um, in key areas of the brain like the prefrontal cortex. And those are new synapses and new connections between neurons that are forming. Um, but they don't just stay there, you know, they don't just form and go away. They actually are persisting for up to a month after the single exposure to the psychedelic. So that gives us an idea that 
Um, from a structural standpoint, these types of drugs may be uh, opening a period of plasticity in the brain that can help uh, regrow new connections, um, which are the same types of uh, connections that are degenerating in these types of conditions like Alzheimer's. So from a mechanistic standpoint, you know, that gives us a really uh, interesting direction to look at. So, I mean, we have this very clear signal here, and it's not just in animals. I mean, there have been single case reports and, and, you know, in clinical realm, myself included, we hear patients tell us certain stories and we're all like, wow, it has to be research. You know, and yet, like, you're the only center that I'm aware at Hopkins that is doing this, right? I mean, there's no one else particularly looking at of using psilocybin specifically for Alzheimer's. Uh, correct. I'm not aware of anybody else doing that at the moment. So it's so we have this situation. I'm just going to play a devil's advocate here. So we have this situation where in the last basically two years, we had two completely ineffective drugs. One got FDA approved with a high chances of serious side effects like brain edema and brain bleeding mm-hmm. that cost, I'm talking about Adelheim, of course, that cost something like seventy or $80,000 a year, got yes. basically trying to get approved by Medicare. And here we have a psilocybin, right, that, that basically costs close to nothing and has potential and nobody is really outside of just the your institution is trying to look into this in a systematic way i think it's i personally feel upset about it because i have a lot of patients asking me these questions and and the cannabis of course is also fascinating one because there's also a pretty strong preclinical and animal models um, suggestions that this is a potential and it needs to be studied and yet um, you know, there's very little interest in that. All right. So we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Not- well, no, I mean, I agree with you 100%. And what I would say is there's a, a number of factors here that are involved. One of which is there's been a, a lot of stigmatization and taboo around these drugs. I mean, since the 1971 Controlled Substances Act, you know, they were placed in the most highly restricted class of drugs, both cannabis and the psychedelics, sure. um, which made it very difficult to do research with them. Um, but also, you know, they were considered drugs of abuse and dangerous. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as such, you know, there's a lot of concern, you know, from people about anybody using these at all. Um, But then, you know, the other thing that I think makes it difficult is that this is not a proprietary molecule that Pfizer or some company owns. This is something that comes out of the ground. uh, And we've known about for thousands of years. And so that also makes it difficult for people to capitalize on this as a medication development direction. Um, And so I think between those political and economic types of uh, factors, those are some of the things that have been setbacks for this type of research. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's... uh... But, we, but we're seeing a climate about, you know, all the substances are rapidly changing. I mean, as we doing this podcast, there's a conversation at the government, you know, to, to try to significantly shift at least the cannabis. And I think psilocybin following very closely in footsteps. And it's more of a question when rather than if uh, the substance is going to get rescheduled or descheduled. We'll have to see. But you know, and 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 hopefully, <clears throat> from our clinic clinicians uh, side side of things, it's essential that we see a, a quick change in the potential for research at the minimum, because obtaining Schedule One controlled substance is a, a chore, and it's very difficult, as you said, to do this research. Once that shifts, I think there's going to be a lot more opportunities, and and this is you'll tell us a little bit more about this, but I'm I'm assuming it, it's 
a study where you probably get a lot of interested patients. Now, the screening, of course, is always tricky into the studies, but how is the recruitment going? Well, I would say, you know, over the last few years, we've had a better time with recruitment uh, just because of the media uh, popularity around these uh, studies that we're working on. Mm-hmm. And so things like Michael Pollan and, you know, Netflix documentaries and stuff has really uh, piqued a lot of people's interest. But I also don't know that that, that has necessarily penetrated to, you know, some of the um, population who would be dealing with things like Alzheimer's and dementia. Uh, and as a result, you know, I think this study um, has been particularly challenging for us to get people in the door and of course, you know, the screening issues that you mentioned, because I'm more, you know, looking at not just people who are depressed, people who have some sort of uh, Alzheimer's or MCI diagnosis, but then, uh, you know, oftentimes they have other medical conditions that may make it difficult for us to uh, include them in these studies. So, yeah, it's been an uphill battle, I would say, so far, um, but we are gaining traction and, you know, doing these types of podcasts and um, this type of publicity, I think, is helpful so that people uh, are aware that this is going on and that they may be eligible to join a study like this. Mm. Um, since you mentioned Michael Pollan, not that we're going to talk to him anytime soon, but we uh, we have been we have invited him and you too uh, to talk at the upcoming Mushroom Conference in the fall next year. So we'll we'll give our listeners um, more information, but uh, it's going to be more medical. But we will invite. Um, anybody actually, because we're going to try to be a bit more general instead of very, very specific on particular research issues. So we're going to do more of a, like a both research and clinical conference in the fall. Yeah. I love that. I think it's great to be inclusive that way. Yeah. And yeah, I think there's so much to learn here and, and so much to educate others. I, um, um, in my own hometown where I am, I'm in Tacoma park in Maryland. Um, and, uh, I l- recently, uh, sent my cannabis book to one of our delegates who's leading the cannabis cannabis work in Maryland. Um, so I think, I think it's sort of our, we have to do our due diligence to try to promote the topic of pushing the research uphill because, you know, as you said, it's been difficult. So let's shift to, um, you guys doing so many different studies at the Center for Psychedelics and Consciousness Research at Hopkins. Um, do you want to just kind of overview what what's what's going on there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, really historically, what had happened was um, 2006, 2008, uh, Roland Griffiths and the team here, this was before I had gotten here, um, published a couple of papers in Healthy Volunteers just showing that uh, high dose psilocybin was safe and that it was also associated with uh, not only profoundly meaningful experiences, uh, but experiences that seemed to continue to have positive well-being benefits that lasted for months or longer. And that really um, pushed the center here to to grow and start looking in clinical directions. And so with Matt Johnson and colleagues, um, you know, we published a small paper uh, looking at psilocybin and treatment of uh, tobacco smoking cessation, uh, cigarette smokers who wanted to quit. Um, you know, that was a small study, pilot study, but it looked very promising uh, and so now we're doing more follow-up work on that front where we've uh, done a randomized control trial and have another double-blind placebo-controlled trial for cigarette smokers who want to quit using psilocybin, uh, which we're working on. So that's been one very promising direction. Um, but also, you know, I've mentioned some of the work in cancer patients that's looked good, and that's continuing to to grow. There's other centers, even uh, in Maryland, 
that are working on uh, new papers, new research studies in cancer patients. Um, but really, the field has exploded. And, um, you know, we went from having maybe a handful or a couple dozen studies, you know, worldwide to over 120 studies now with psilocybin on clinicaltrials.gov. And so if you want to look for studies, that's a really good place to go because that's where um, they're all registered, clinicaltrials.gov, the website. Um, but, you know, our center has been, uh, you know, part of that in terms of starting to look at other clinical directions. Um, so specifically, my colleague, Dr. Natalie Gacassian, is uh, working on a study of psilocybin in patients with anorexia nervosa. Um, we're working on a new study to start soon in uh, psilocybin in people with obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, we have studies going on now with psilocybin treatment for people with comorbid alcohol use disorder and major depression. Um, we also have studies uh, in people with uh, chronic Lyme disease. Um, the study that I'm working on now in people with early stage Alzheimer's disease and depressed mood. Um, trying to think of what else we got on the plate. Uh, I think we'll have a study starting next year in cannabis dependence, uh, one in opioid dependence, and one in post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I think that's everything, but you know, it's uh, that's off the top of my head, so don't quote me. That is really impressive. Uh, the chronic Lyme disease, we're definitely going to want to have you come back and, and talk to us about that when that one's done, because um, one of the members of the GW Integrative Medicine team, Dr. Andy Heyman, is like an expert on Lyme disease. Lyme disease. Oh, yeah, that, that's great. And it's been so fascinating because um, really I ended up just like, um, you know, we were able to work with Dr. Rosenberg, uh, who's a, you know, expert in uh, geriatric neuropsychiatry to help us with the Alzheimer's study. Um, I was also really fortunate to link up with a really great expert here at Hopkins, Dr. John Alcott, who's been working on Lyme disease research for a couple of decades now. And um, his, so he has been instrumental in helping me kind of shape this small pilot study that we're working on now. Um, but just like with the cancer patients and the patients with Alzheimer's, we're, we're kind of looking at not will the psilocybin fix the Lyme disease per se, but will it help people in terms of their psychological outlook? Will it um, improve their quality of life? And, you know, does it provide any sort of uh, symptom remission, things like uh, chronic pain, um, sleep or fatigue problems, uh, you know, concentration or cognitive difficulties? So, you know, those are the, the directions that we're looking there right now. I think it's, I just find it so fascinating that uh, some of the substances that clearly have potential of partially rewiring some of our connectivity in the brain can have this effects on the chronic medical problems that, you know, in the past we would not have necessarily thought of trying to fix by not doing something clearly biological, like giving a drug or you know, so, but it makes a lot of sense. If you think about all these conditions, it's not just that the stress plays the huge role. It's, it, there is an inflammatory component. There is a component of uh, de degenerative processes in the brain, but not actually only in the brain and other tissues. And so, you know, you have this substances that can do a shift. And what's, what I find totally fascinating is that shift can occur very, very quickly. And, and I would love to hear your take on this because, you know, in some of time, sometimes in clinical practice, we see patients will report to us, they went on some retreat and came back and they're completely different. 
Yeah, and I think that's one of the most fascinating aspects of these drugs is that, uh, you know, it seems like these psychedelics have the potential to be rapid-acting treatments uh, in the sense that, you know, one single high-dose experience for some people can, uh, you know, help put them, you know, in remission from depression uh, within 24 or 48 hours of taking the drug. Um, people with uh, substance use disorders, um, you know, it can really help them uh, make changes in their behavioral patterns around substance use. Um, and we've seen that with our cigarette smokers, who, many of whom have quit and stayed quit for a long term. And so, you know, that, that remains a bit of a mystery. You know, why is it that we can see such uh, rapid shifts and why they last so long after just a single experience with these drugs. Um, but, you know, you're right. There are all these different biological mechanisms at play, you know, from the cellular neuroplasticity to you know, changes in brain network dynamics, um, things like anti-inflammatory effects that we know these psychedelics also have, their potent anti-inflammatory um, effects. And then I think the other kind of piece of the puzzle that's really important is that people can have extremely meaningful uh, sometimes they might describe them as spiritual or existential types of experiences uh, when they're under the influence of these psychedelics. And that in itself, I think, can be uh, a big wake-up call for people to think about themselves or their lives differently or to put things in perspective for them. And, you know, that in itself can really help facilitate the therapeutic process is, is what it you know, seems to me. Whole body health. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, this is really an integrative type of treatment because this is not about, um, you know, giving somebody a drug and then they get better um, kind of like a mechanism that is purely biological. But there's a huge psychological and I would say even spiritual component involved in, in a lot of this type of work. Now, what type of resources do you have on on Hopkins' website for people just interested in learning, you know, lay people interested in learning a little more about this? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, all of our work is on uh, our website, which is hopkinspsychedelic.org. Uh, and so if anybody wants to learn more about what we're going on, what we have going on at the center, they can always visit our website, hopkinspsychedelic.org. Um, that has, you know, a listing of the team members. It has our currently enrolling research projects. Uh, it also has a listing uh, of all of our publications over the last 20 years. Uh, and so, you know, that's a great resource. Uh, we try to keep it up to date, uh, put lots of news stories up there as well, because there's a lot of great media out there about this type of stuff. Um, and, you know, certainly, you know, when this podcast is released, we'll share it as well on our social media. And so people can follow the lab at, you know, Twitter or on Facebook as well. Uh, and we're on LinkedIn. So all of those those different channels are available if uh, people want to find what find out what we're doing or reach out to us. Albert, do you have any clinical pearls that you'd like to share with folks before we sign off? You know, I think right now we're still a little too early on, you know, specifically if we're talking about the Alzheimer's uh, disease work, because we've, we've only enrolled about five people. So it's hard for me to make, um, you know, big uh, generalizations or statements about what we're finding. But um, what I do think is important to kind of take away from this conversation is that, you know, some of the stigma around these substances is not particularly well-founded. Um, you know, the, the toxicity potential is fairly low in terms of, uh, potential for harm to the body. Um, psychological effects, you know, they can be intense, um, but we know how to manage that pretty well. 
Uh, and we've done it in hundreds of people over the last 20 years here at Hopkins and other labs are, you know, um, taking the ball and running with it. So I think there's going to be a lot more work on the horizon. Uh, and, you know, we're kind of moving towards a, a medical approval in the next few years. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's just uh, an exciting time to be both part of the field and doing this work, but also for, I think, practitioners uh, and, you know, other people in the healthcare field um, to potentially think about how they might be able to integrate this within their own clinical practice. I feel like we're, we're like in this very, very early phases and we all have this belief that there's going to be an impact. But of course, you know, the, the science is always takes a lot longer than we would like. It sure does. <laughs> it's a slow moving process, but yeah, but it's going, you know, it's going the right direction. Yeah, and it's going right direction. And, and, you know, I think, um, I think what we'll have to do is as you guys grow and get more data, we'll, we'll bring you back at some point and kind of do this on a somewhat regular basis where we can keep giving our listeners more information about where things standing. Um, Absolutely. Anytime. And, and, you know, I'm not the only person and I'm certainly not doing all the work that I talked about. You know, there's a lot of folks at the center with uh, a lot of great information. You know, Dr. Fred Barrett is a neuroscientist, Dr. Nally Gukasian, um, Dr. David Yadin. So we've got, you know, a growing team here that is really helping to move this work forward together. And I do want to give a credit. The, the, the person who connected us is my longtime friend, Rael Khan. He's at, uh, he's at UCSD, right? Uh, yeah, he's over in California. That's correct. In California, yeah. So he's also studying this. There's there's a lot of other people studying this. I mean, it, it, the, the process of research here is happening. It's not like it's just one entity. I mean, maps, of course, and and you know. So there's a lot of interest and a lot of research going slowly. It's just too slow for us. But yeah, I want to make sure. I want to make sure that we give full credit for Ryle for getting us together. And um, so we'll um, we'll make sure that when the podcast comes out, Jonathan, make sure that we don't forget that. We'll, we'll put in the link to upcoming conference uh, in there. So anybody who would like to sign up for it can do so. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Albert. This was wonderful. We'll have you back sooner or later. Uh, maybe before we close, anything else you want to add that uh, you feel like you want to share with listeners? No, I think we covered a lot of great ground here. So I just, you know, thank you all for having me on and appreciate the conversation. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Albert. Thank you. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks, Thanks for listening. listening. The Office of Integrative Medicine and Health produces the GW Integrative Medicine podcast with funds from your donations. Your generosity allows us to raise awareness of the benefits of integrating whole person care, including evidence-based complementary therapies, into healthcare broadly. Help us continue to grow the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation on our website, smhs.gwu.edu slash OIMH. Click the Give Now button on the left. While you're there, sign up for our free monthly newsletter for even more evidence-based content, including free webinars.